0: I'm strengthening my good habit muscle and I'm like, this is a gift that I'm giving my future self. Like I don't get too hung up on like doing something perfectly because I know that if I don't do it today, I'm making it less likely that I'm gonna do it tomorrow. Like every day I don't do the thing that I said I was gonna do, I'm making it harder for my future self to do it.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, my guest is Sarah Von Bargen, who writes about goal setting, work life balance, and travel, among other things, at her blog, yesandyes.org. She also teaches online courses and offers ebooks about habits, money management, and the personal pursuit of happiness. You know, I've known Sarah for almost 10 years now, and what I love about her is that she doesn't just churn out advice, she walks the walk, and she isn't afraid to reflect on what is and isn't working, and to really dig in and separate received ideas about happiness from what is actually creating happiness in her own life. Now, Sarah is from Minnesota, you can hear it in her accent, and there's a great Midwestern pragmatism to her way of looking at things. She knows that process is ultimately more important than outcomes when setting and evaluating life goals, because really outcomes are the result of process, and you can't separate the two. In particular, Sarah has six principles to keep in mind for anyone who wants to identify, embrace, and maintain their own unique way of being happy in the world. And this interview was recorded one day before income tax deadline a couple weeks ago, and we start the conversation by geeking out on USB microphones. Let's listen in. This is my special microphone.
0: Oh, fancy? Ooh, this is my Blue Yeti.
1: Ooh, nice. Mine's an Ars Technica. who so.
0: nice? Are you in Kansas?
1: Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Sarah and I are showing each other our microphones. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm talking about which midwestern place we're in
1: <laughs> that's true uh i am in kansas i i was in hawaii uh for much of the winter and then i was in new york for six weeks
0: oh gosh that's so nice
1: where i did some interviews and uh yeah now i'm back in kansas although i'm going to oregon this weekend for the reunion of my grunge band swizzlefish
0: oh that's so fun
1: yeah and i'm 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 finishing my freaking taxes so, oh,
0: whoa, you are cutting it close. Uh,
1: but Sarah, I was thinking about calling this episode, Sarah Von Bargen is here to help you break your bad self-help habits.
0: Ooh, oh, that's so good. <laughs> I want to like, steal that and make that my next product.
1: <laughs> and so the reason I came up with that particular title is that it feels like there's a lot of people who are gung-ho on self-help and mm-hmm. a lot of subject matter in podcasts is about self-help. Mm -hmm. But we tend to be passive and sometimes and insipid in the way that we receive Mm self-help. And so you, before this interview or before this call, I had you send me uh, six items of advice. I'll read those now just to sort of tease what we're going to hear from you. And then we'll come back and talk about this in a big picture sense. But uh, this this will actually be the first list-driven episode I've had. Um, I told you to itemize some things you've learned in in 10 years of blogging and sort of giving lifestyle advice, and these are your six. You said, one, you're probably not the exception to the rule. Two, stop pretending it's easy. That serves no one. Three, the truth about work-life balance is that you're going to find success a lot slower if you have that balance. That success is in air quotes, by the way. Four, track your process, not your progress. Five, you probably can't predict what will work, what will go viral, and what people will like. And six, related, don't set goals that you can't control. It almost feels like a lot of what you do as a blogger and sort of as a as as a teacher or life coach type person is sort of like tough love love for dumb habits. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. A lot of it is, I mean, I preface a lot of the things that I write with, this is a thing you don't want to hear, but it's the truth. Or like, you know, awkward to have to say this, but I think we all know X, Y, Z, or, you know, I know that you know this, but none of us are actually doing anything about it. So I try to take things that either, I I try to condense things and communicate things in a way that is actionable and honest and pragmatic. And I don't want anyone to feel bad (laughs) after they've read anything that I've written, but, you know, I, I try to, it's, you know, a, a fairly loving kick in the ass um, to do the thing that you probably know that you should be doing.
1: And I think there's something nice and concrete about what you do because I think sometimes you can listen to a lot of self-help or similar podcasts for a while and think, yes, I've simplified my life. But then it's not until you sit down with the Sarah Von Bargain and itemize what you've been spending each month and discover that, <laughs> yeah. that maybe mm-hmm. you've been spending an extra $463 a month on on coffee uh, at Starbucks and other non-necessary items that it plays out so that's really that's another part of what you do right is is Mm -hmm. just being very concrete and and sort of calling out the self-reassurance bromides not to make people feel feel bad but just help them identify places where they could be doing better
0: yes yeah i try to make things incredibly actionable and incredibly concrete so i mean there's a lot of i'm sure that anybody who's been on facebook or instagram has been served ads about like you know, change your money mindset or increase your wealth basically through thinking. And I'm much more likely to say like, okay, well, let's print out your bank account statement and get some highlighters and look at this. You know, so I'm I'm sort of the one who's like, yes, that's great. Let's maybe start on a more basic pragmatic level because it's, it's hard to do the, you know, um, ethereal stuff if you haven't, you know, built a good base.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of self-help in the podcast aid Age can be like joining the gym on New Year's Day where it <laughs> Yes. You feel better and it's like I've joined the gym. I've internalized mm-hmm. some self-help. Mm-hmm. Uh but then there's there's something to be said for going in and really pushing back against the bromide level of self-help and seeing what are you doing. So let's let's jump right in, in the in the six pieces of advice that you gave me, which are sort of an all-star uh Kick your butt uh, roundup of lessons that you've learned from from ten years of doing what you do, and number mm-hmm. one says you're probably not the exception to the rule. What does that mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of us um, have a tendency to believe, and this applies to like every arena of our life. Um, it applies professionally, personally, financially, creatively. Um, you know, we'll be like warned about an employer or we'll be warned about, you know, some incredibly good looking person or we'll be warned about like some pyramid marketing scheme Um, or we'll even be warned about like a certain way to market yourself. And we'll think, okay, yeah, no, I've heard other people say that that doesn't work or I've heard that that, you know, that person is bad news. But but we think that we're going to be the exception to the rule. We think that you know, like, oh, pyramid, like I know nobody else makes money selling essential oils, but I'm going to be the one who makes it. Or like, I know everybody has said that that person is bad news and that they cheat on their partner and that they have like a drinking problem, but I'll be so awesome that they won't do that. Or I know I've looked at the Glassdoor reviews and everybody says that employer is awful, but I'm going to be so amazing and have such good boundaries that they won't treat me like that. Um, it, and it applies everywhere. Or, you know, like everybody says that you shouldn't pitch that magazine because they never pay on time and the editors are terrible, but not me. That's not going to happen to me. Um, And many of us think this way. Um, And the truth is you're probably not going to be the exception to the rule. And it's, which sounds incredibly depressing, but I think it's actually incredibly freeing. Like it's not personal. Like it's not personal that that employer, you know, that your boss treated you poorly, they treat everybody poorly. It's not, it's not personal, or it's, it's not personal that you, you sent pitches to that magazine, and they never applied to anybody because their editors are super flaky. When you can sort of like, remove that aspect and just realize this is just what happens. This is how this company treats everybody. This is how, you know, people respond to this type of marketing. It it takes the pressure off you, and you don't have to feel bad about yourself. And it even applies to like, you know, we both travel all the time. And maybe, you know, you've heard like, oh, it's really hard to get a visa to India. And you think, oh, but you know, I'm super organized. And like, I have lots of friends in India, and I travel a lot. So it's not going to be hard for me. And then when it is, we're surprised every time. So it, it sounds like pretty dark and depressing. But if you can just sort of look at the rule of averages, if most people are having this experience, It's a lot easier if you just kind of imagine that you're gonna have this same experience. And then if you unexpectedly have a positive one, how great. But if you just go into it understanding like, you know, this is something that a lot of people struggle with, or, you know, this employer usually treats people like this, then you won't take it personally when you have the same experience. And it can also be applied positively. So like, if everybody you know is having amazing results with their business by using email marketing, you probably will too, you're not, you know, if you have a business and most people have success using a certain thing, you will probably also have success with it. Or if a lot of your friends stop drinking soda and start sleeping better and lose 20 pounds, you will also probably have the same results. So I think we can apply it both positively and negatively. Most of us have a habit of thinking that we're gonna be the exception to the rule, either this this situation doesn't apply to me, either positively or negatively. But if you can just remove that, things will be a lot easier for you in almost every area of your life.
1: Well, this is sort of a sweetly American attitude, I think. I read somewhere that like 40% of all Americans think that they're in the 2% of all earners or can be, right?
0: I'm sure, yes.
1: Like most Americans think that they can eventually be rich, but what they're forgetting about is is the process, I guess. And so, In a sense, it sounds like this piece of advice, or this this piece of um, of you know hard advice, is basically self preparation. It's basically mm-hmm. saying that there's, there are no shortcuts. There's no magical wand that will get you the India visa faster, or yeah. make your boss suddenly like you, or mm-hmm. uh, find the life partner who who treats you in a way that's extraordinarily different than the way he or she has treated their other life partners.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it and I think that. With so much, if you can just, you know, life is generally not, you know, if if I, if I apply to work for someone, and they have treated all of their assistants poorly, and they also treat me poorly, it's not a reflection on who I am, it's a reflection on them. So I think it's incredibly freeing to remove the personal aspect from that. Like, if you can't get an India visa, it's not a commentary on you as a human being. It's just a fact that it's hard to get an Indian visa. And when you stop, you know, viewing everything through a lens of this is a personal attack on me, or this is a personal, this is a commentary on my worth as a human being, it just gets a lot easier to navigate things in a way that you're proud of and that doesn't
1: stress you out. Well, I think travel can be an interesting metaphor here because if you're not in a hurry, then you can wait for the Indian visa. You yeah. Can just, you can just do the work. I think a lot of stress that's attached to travel is about expectations. It's about trying to yes. get the Indian visa. In a rush and to maximize your time because you don't have much time. But I think that Mm -hmm. if you if you have patience and you prepare for it and you realize that it is a process and that part of the fun is in the process. Mm -hmm. um, Of course, I don't know if that would if the process of dating a toxic person would be. uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's probably yeah. and actually, just to clarify, uh, tell tell us a little bit about what your clients are like, because we we we've, we've touched on travel, we've talked on relationships, we've talked a- about jobs, just in the examples of, of point number one here. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, what kind of advice do your clients and readers typically come to you for?
0: Um, a lot of them. Uh, many people come to me for advice on situations where, like they've they've achieved. Um, certain level of success or they've got the thing that they thought they wanted and now they're not quite and things don't look the way they want or the way they expected so there are a lot of people who you know they get the career that they always wanted and they realize like okay well i have this job but my bank account doesn't look the way i thought it would or my life doesn't look the way they i thought it would or you know i have this job title Um, but you know, I'm still, I still feel like I'm a total mess outside of this or, you know, like I am married and I have kids the way I thought I would be, but it definitely doesn't feel the way I thought it would. So a lot of it is the sort of disconnect between what people thought their lives would look like, their professional lives, their financial lives, their personal lives. And they, they have, they, they got the thing that they thought they wanted, but then it doesn't quite behind the scenes look the way they thought they would. So I help them you know, find some alignment like, okay, well, so your life doesn't feel the way you thought you would. Let's look at how you're spending your time and your energy. Let's look at how you're spending your money, because frequently, if you can many of us say that things make us happy and then when we look at our spending, our spending doesn't necessarily align with that. Or, you know, we thought that having this career would make us feel this way. But if we actually look at how we spend our time and energy it's not. There's a reason that we're not feeling the way we want to feel, and maybe it doesn't have anything to do with the job
1: title. So, in a sense, you're sort of fine tuning uh, people's uh, uh, way of looking at the world and way of being in the world in their um, professional and personal lives. Now, are mm-hmm. your uh, are your clients mostly and readers mostly women, or is that a?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do have um, the occasional guy who, who buys my, who buys my books and my courses. And I definitely have male readers. Um, but I would say the vast majority of my clients are women and they're usually, you know, probably 25 to 50, um, pretty professionally accomplished or, um, you know, you know, the sort of people who, who are really intentional about how they want to spend their time and if their life looks and feels the way they want it to. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, you know,
1: What you mentioned in part one doesn't feel uh, exclusive to women. And so at at some points, even though most of your clients are women, we can talk about how this might differ, um, you know, uh, from men to women. But I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot of this advice you're talking about is pretty universal. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so let's go into number two. Um, Stop pretending it's easy. That Mm -hmm. serves no one. What do you mean by that?
0: Um, I think very much something that, very, very much something that women do, and something that Midwesterners do, is it it we have been socialized to um, underplay or discount how much work we put into something. Somebody will compliment us on our career or even like how well our dog is trained or. You know, like the business that we run or the book that we wrote and many, many of us say things like, oh, this whole thing or, oh, I just threw it together or, oh, my gosh, well, but look at, oh, look, the, the hem is frayed. Like many of us can't take a compliment. We deflect the compliment or we completely deny um, the work that went into the thing that we created or made or did or have. And when we do that, it is incredibly unhelpful. I mean, I, I mean, this is something that I've had to work hard to overcome. So I say this as somebody who used to do this all the time, but like if somebody compliments me on my blog, I try really hard now to say, thank you. I work really hard on it because if you pretend that it was easy and that it wasn't a lot of work, you are doing a disservice to that person because now they, they don't, they think that the thing that you have is easy and that they could do it themselves And they probably could do it themselves. But when they try and it's a lot of work, they're going to feel bad about themselves because they don't have an honest understanding of what goes into it. And also pretty much anything that any of us have that is good or healthy um, or abundant probably required a lot of work. And we should we deserve to acknowledge that to ourselves and communicate that to other people.
1: That's interesting that it's almost an obligation to other people to, to, yeah, sort of truly. Be, to be candid about what exactly goes into this. It's it's funny that you draw a parallel between Midwesterners. I guess it's that Minnesota nice or something where you feel mm-hmm. there's some sort of cult, um, cultural compulsion not to be braggy, right? Yes. Um, oh, gosh, yes. All right. On to number three, the truth about work-life balance is that you're going to find, quote, success, unquote, a lot slower if you have that balance, So, what does this mean?
0: Um, Essentially, it means that you can move your professional life forward a lot faster if you're not particularly concerned about your physical health, your emotional health, um, or your relationships. Um, And I mean, I think there are times in all of our lives usually you know when we're in our 20s or maybe you know other times when we're like you know whatever like i'm totally down with drinking five red bulls and working all night because i'm super excited about this project or you know like you move to a new city you don't know a lot of people okay it's a great time to hunker down and really like get things started on your book proposal or you know your startup but if you want to have a social life stay in touch with friends from other cities exercise sleep eight hours eat some produce occasionally, have a partner, take care of your pets. If you want to do that stuff, which, you know, I think most of us want to do that stuff. If you want to do that stuff, that really limits the amount of time and energy you can spend on your professional career. And that is totally, totally fine. But it's a, it's a trade off. Like if you want work life balance, your professional life will probably move forward more slowly. I am personally 100% okay with that. But I think a lot of us look at people online um, and the success they're having. And it seems like, oh my gosh, like, how are they doing? Like, how did they go from 100,000 to 1.2 million in one year? And the truth is, they probably don't have work-life balance. And that's totally okay. That's clearly a, a choice that they're making. But you can't Compare if you are trying to have work-life balance, if you're trying to see your friends and like hang out with your dog and like occasionally live the city and sleep eight hours, things are going to go slower for you simply because you're making those choices.
1: Well, I think, too, that social media, you know, internet self-promotion is is so performative anyway, you know, that, that, yes. that who knows if it really was 100,000 to 1. 1.2 million in a year. Yes. People tend to round, round up and sort of oversell themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Was that line from Mad Men that basically this is America? Um, we say who we are and then try our best to become that person. You know, so Ooh, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of people, and, and there's an optimism in that, but I think that that also means that almost everybody that we see and compare ourselves to online is exaggerating themselves a little bit. They're trying; they're not mm-hmm. actually living that, but they're trying to grow into it. And mm-hmm. an, an interesting thing about this particular point. Is that it? This might have a special resonance with men and especially young men mm-hmm. um, who I, I think sometimes are judged or at least feel that they're judged on their level of success.
0: Oh, gosh, yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, and 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 this is this is really a, a balance thing too because I often tell people when I speak about travel at places like universities, universities, oh, go waste your twenties. Your twenties are made to be wasted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yet,
1: yet the twenties, and of course, I mean that somewhat facetiously because I think when you're when you're traveling, then in in a way that is still open-minded and open to self-improvement and education, that in a way, you're sort of air quote wasting your 20s when really you're engaging the world and learning things that you would never learn even in a graduate program at home. Mm -hmm. Yet the flip side to that is that a lot of people in their 20s, a lot of men in their 20s, women too, feel a lot of pressure that your 20s or even your 30s is this arena in which you should be a workaholic. Because it feels like workaholism Mm -hmm. is is at the bottom of point number three here.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And so it goes back to fine tuning and balance. I mean, how does that, Mm -hmm. what would you say to somebody who's anxious, who wants to have the balance, who wants to spend time with their dog and their girlfriend and their sports league, Mm -hmm. uh, and they want to travel as much as possible, but they're really worried about you know, maybe they're in a competitive career or they're just worried in general about being a freelancer. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any strategies or even just bits of advice for striking that balance between being ambitious and trying to enjoy your actual life within that ambition?
0: Yeah, well, and this is where we get down to like a really brass tack sort of solution. Um, So one of the things that I really encourage people to do is figure out what makes you happy. Figure out these things that are really adding to your life. So, you know... Watching Netflix with your girlfriend, or taking your dog for a walk, or playing soccer with your friends. And sometimes these are big, like relatively time consuming things, but a lot of times these are not really that big. Like, okay, like how long does it take you to walk your dog in the morning? And I actually encourage people to set a timer and figure out how long does it take for you to do this thing that you enjoy? Because a lot of times it's shockingly small, like sending a postcard to your grandma you know, walking your dog in the morning. So set a timer and figure out how much time these things actually take. And then, and this is totally horrifying for 90% of the population, there are two different apps that you can install on your phone. Um, I have an Android and the Android app is called Moments. I don't remember what the iPhone app is called, but I'm sure you can Google it. And this app will tell you how much time you spend on your phone. (laughs) Um, And so then, and at the end of the day, it'll give you a pie chart and we'll tell you like, okay, you spent three and a half hours on Instagram today. Or you spent like two hours on Facebook on your phone today. And so then once you have that information, okay, here's a thing that these are the things that add to my life and how much time they take. This is how much time I'm spending on my phone on social media. The um, Those two numbers are usually hor- horrifying because you will discover that, okay, watching like two episodes of Homeland with my girlfriend what is that? That's like two hours. And um, I th- I think I never have time for it. And I do it like once a week. And yet I'm somehow finding time to spend three and a half hours on Instagram. Um, so that is one of the one of the techniques that I teach people because it usually takes like better or happier actually usually takes much less time than we think. And we usually have a lot more time um, in our days and in our schedules than we realize because sadly, a lot of us are wasting it, um, on stuff that doesn't ultimately add to our lives.
1: Yeah, it really feels like there's this, it's a matter of efficiency, which we have all of these devices and apps and strategies for maximizing efficiency, but then we sort of piss it away in the mm, yes. in Instagram yeah. sense. So that's what this this app that, that tells you that, it feels like it can really re- reflect that back to you. Because I think sometimes, I mean, much has been written about the fact that these are like little neurological treats. We'll just oh, sneak yeah. a peek- At Instagram because it makes our brain happy and we can procrastinate Mm -hmm. for another 90 seconds well those 90 seconds add up
0: oh Um, gosh absolutely and I'm sure your your listeners have seen these studies about when you're when you're in the zone and you're doing something and then you're distracted it takes you something like 20 minutes to get back in the zone so maybe you think that it's not a big deal that I'm checking Instagram but you've actually just lost 20 minutes because even if you only look at Instagram for two it's going to take you 20 minutes to get your focus back onto the thing that you were working on before.
1: Yeah, and you might think, oh, I'm just going to check Instagram for a second because I have things to do. Then pretty soon you're, you're making a comment and you, you mm-hmm. found a, a, a great new uh, account to follow. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, I think that gap between intention and actual action... Oh,
0: my goodness, yeah.
1: Uh, yes. It really is huge. And, and the, the sad thing is that we don't even realize it, which I think is great with this this Moments app that can pay attention to that. Do you use other mm-hmm. things? to use, like, um, um, uh, I used a, uh, an app on my laptop called Freedom a, a few years ago. Oh, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I use, um, so the things that I do is I swear by the Pomodoro method, which I'm sure everybody knows. You set a timer for 25, you do one task for 25 minutes, and then you do a totally different task for five minutes. So I will do, I'll like write for 25 minutes. And then for five minutes, I'll like get up and go put in a load of laundry. And then I work in um, four 25-minute chunks. And the thing that it's great, the thing that's important is that the five-minute chunk has to be something totally different. It's not like write for five, write for 25 minutes and then check email for five minutes. It needs to be like physically separate. So I use the Pomodoro method. Um, I use, I think it's called Chrome Blocker, a, a plugin that blocks me from stuff on my computer. Um, the other thing that I do is about once a month i go to um i do a sort of self-imposed writing retreat and i go to a very specific llama farm in rural wisconsin that doesn't have wi-fi um and write and do the bulk of my writing for the month at this specific farm that doesn't have wi-fi
1: llama farms for everybody that is the yes
0: solution. yes
1: um well, I want to get to the other side of this, which is really how to make this pay off. Because it, it mm-hmm. feels like we're hiding all of this free time or all of this uh, maximized efficiency, uh, efficiency time mm-hmm. in, in these silly little wasted habits. And mm-hmm. you gave some examples that might apply to a freelancer, you know, mm-hmm. because you, you, you're you not going to, I uh, forget what your example was, wash your clothes or whatever in the workplace. But I've, I read sure. somewhere yeah. that like, Porn pornography use in America peaks on like Monday morning, right? Oh my so, god! So, oh my uh, god. so the ways that we and, and 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 pornography is just one extreme example of the ways that one can waste one's time in an actual office oh um, in, instead of in completing tasks. So, I think you've get, uh, given. Are you, are you familiar with antisocial? Um, no. I think it's a plug-in. I mentioned antisocial and freedom, although I don't use them as much anymore. Um, but uh, I'll have to see. I'll put it in the show notes if it's still around. But it's basically, it basically limits your your social networking uh, mm-hmm. app time to like 10 minutes. So you give yourself like yeah. 10 minutes a day on Facebook, and then it won't let you into Facebook once you've used your 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but one, once we have rediscovered this stuff, I, I think the, the, the risk here is that Okay, so you, you're able to give yourself 90 minutes of Instagram efficiency a day, but then mm-hmm. sometimes you pour that into other inefficiencies, right? Yes. And yeah. so so what are some strategies on not just finding extra time within not wasting it, but putting it into an actual activity that can help maintain the work-life balance, which is what point number three is all about?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I would say the first thing that is, it's it's really important that people get, incredibly clear and honest with themselves about what work-life balance looks like the things that make them happy the things that fill them up because um i think especially like as we get older um we sort of like are you know it's very easy to forget about all the stuff that used to make us happy like are, are we still doing the things that brought us joy in college no we're probably down to like two hobbies so i really really encourage people to set aside some time and really think about what makes them happy. And also I really encourage people to sort of, I call it diversifying your happiness because many of us, we get all of our happiness from some variation on the same thing. Like I know some people who get all of their happiness from like working out or playing sports or being active. But what happens like if you break your leg or they get all of their happiness from their career and their professional connections and like, you know, getting a big scoop for the magazine that they work for, or they get all of their happiness from their relationship and their children and their partner. So I really encourage people to think about what makes you happy, like what delights you intellectually, like what ideas, what concepts, what makes you happy in your body, like what smells, what types of exercise, um, what makes you happy interpersonally. Like for me, I love connecting with people who are really different than me. Um, And for some people, it's having, you know, friendships that go back to when you're like five years old. Or for some people, it's, you know, having really good friends at work. So I I really think a lot of it starts with getting clear and honest about what makes you happy and making for sure that that's like a pretty long list because it's hard to fill. So let's say you free up 90 minutes because you're not obsessively checking Instagram you want to have stuff to plug into that that really fills you up because if you don't have stuff to fill it up, it's really easy to just spend that ninety minutes on Facebook
1: instead. Or porn in the workplace, apparently. So yes, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's insane.
1: I, I think that this is this is really key and it could be really at the core of the kind of advice that you give, which is that the idea of what makes you happy. Because I think in America there's. So many prescribed ideas of happiness, you know mm-hmm. that i'm gonna I'm gonna work really hard and get five sports cars or right. i'm I'm gonna work really hard and then I'm going to have a giant closet full of all of the clothes you know that I could ever imagine or want. but I think <laughs> there are a lot of purchase oriented happiness prescriptions in in the United States and I think that that's that's something that's been disproven you know nothing against <laughs> treating yourself sometimes Oh sure yeah but I think I think like people have studied it the actual happiness that lasts after you get the sports car or after you get the wardrobe it just doesn't last very long in comparison mm-hmm. to mm-hmm some of these other relationship or intellectual or even physical based examples that you were giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so how are, since, since so much of what we see as happiness in the United States is received wisdom or even marketing and promotion, you know, mm-hmm. that this dish detergent is gonna make us happy. Um, yeah. How can we How can we identify our own happiness? How can we find yeah. a happiness that is unique to ourselves, and it is not just something, not just a keeping up with the Joneses television advertisement idea of what makes us happy.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that I really encourage people to start with is to remember what made you happy in like third grade. Because, like, what made you happy back before you were worried about, like, am I good enough to go pro, or is this monetizable, or, like, can I make this into my YouTube channel? Because I think, for a lot of us, like, maybe you loved playing baseball, and then you got to ninth grade, and you weren't good enough to make the varsity team, so you quit. Or, you know, maybe... Like when I was a kid, I loved theater and dance and singing. And then I graduated from high school and I'd been in all these plays and stuff. But I was like, well, I'm not going to be a theater major. What can I do with that? So I just stopped, even though I truly still love those things. So and, and when you're a kid, I mean, honestly, the stuff that you liked when you were a kid, it is very likely that you still like it, but you just haven't tried it because you probably wrote it off like 20 years ago. So think about when you were in second, third, fourth grade, and think about what made you happy, because there's probably an adult version of it. Like, you can join a rec league and play soccer, or you can, you know, join a community theater group, or take a community ed class on something. So that's some place that I really encourage people to start. And in terms of figuring out, like, sort of where you're getting your messaging about happiness... I think a really good thing to think about is think about the things that you think make you happy and then think about the people who surround you your coworkers, your friends your neighbors your family and if every and if the vast majority of those people hold the same views about that thing it's worth reconsidering because I mean it's totally possible that like what your parents what makes them happy and what makes your sibling happy and what makes your neighbor happy it's totally possible that that truly does make you happy I mean, most people do genuinely enjoy spending time in nature. Most people really do, you know, like spending time with their pets. But if most people in your life are telling you like, yeah, owning an Audi makes me happy. And and you think that too, it, it's worth unpacking that a little bit. If you see these, if you see the same message reflected everywhere and everyone in your life, take a minute to think about that because it's pretty likely that you've, Absorbed that message by osmosis from your surroundings. So take some time to really unpack that and think about if it actually makes you happy. After you think about it, you might you might find that yeah, it really does. But a lot of times you might think like, no, this is just messaging left over from how I was raised or my coworkers.
1: Yeah, I, I think that this is a this is something that we have to keep reminding ourselves about too. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I'm fortunate in that I, I mean, part of what you touched on earlier was the idea of. There's this professionalization of what we love, and if we feel that Mm -hmm. we can't do it professionally, then then we sort of disregard it, and we try to focus our energies. In in that time of, as young people, in that time of becoming, when we're really trying to figure out what we want to do and how we want to spend our time, and we leave some of those things behind. Well, I became a travel writer, and I get to do fun things like podcasts and teach classes and stuff, and what I do really aligns with with what I dreamed about and in some ways has exceeded the kinds of things that I dreamt about. But that doesn't really exempt me from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And an example that I have, I guess as a travel writer, I can also be a workaholic as as Mm -hmm. the Rolf Potts brand. You might have examples of yourself when you might stray a little bit too far um, on the work life balance. But I went to Hawaii this winter. I usually go to warm places to just sort of avoid seasonal affective disorder. but oftentimes I'll do work. I'll, I'll, I'll be in the warm place, but I'm, I'm working on a writing project. Well, I spent mm-hmm. about three weeks driving around the big island and Kauai in Hawaii and really got into hiking, which isn't something – it's something I did a little bit when I was 10, but it was really central to my life when I was 18 or 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized the pleasure that I find in mm-hmm. hiking and, and backpacking and just having a physical day. What I do mm-hmm. is so cerebral. I'm inside my head so much, which is, which is mm-hmm. nice. I like that process. But – but just sweating myself, you know, getting completely sweaty, hiking, yes. having no goal other than being on the trail all day, I really felt a kind of happiness that I hadn't fully mm-hmm. experienced apart from some international travels as a teenager. So, actually, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the week this podcast will come out, I'm doing a hike on the Lost Coast Trail in California. I'm a, a okay. full on backpacking trip. That I thought, well, I just I need to honor that feeling. I can't mm-hmm. just scratch yes. that itch in Hawaii. Yes. I need to create opportunities to return mm-hmm. to this to this feeling. So that's that's something that I didn't even think about it in terms of point number three that we've been talking about for a while, but that that literally is an epiphany I had this winter. That if this if hiking, if being physical and, and, and sort of letting my work go all day for several days makes me happy. Well, then that's why it's okay to not get a little bit more work done. It's going yeah. to create opportunities.
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Uh, well, let's move on to number four. Track your process. It's so a words that's come up several times already. Mm-hmm. Not your progress. Track your process, not your progress. What does that mean?
0: Um, well, this is something that I teach in my habits course, but I think it applies to pretty much everything. Um, in American culture, probably everywhere around the world, we are incredibly consumed and concerned by outcomes. You know, how much money did I make? How many magazines, you know, published my work? How many people bought my book? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, And when it comes to habits, we get really concerned about like, okay, well, how much weight did I lose? And, and how many miles did I log running and and that kind of stuff. Um, But the thing is, you can't necessarily control your progress the way you want. There are always going to be things beyond your control. And the sort of hard truth is, is that progress happens a lot more slowly than most of us would like to believe. Um, And so when you track your progress, like how much money you made or how much weight you lost, or, you know, how many magazines have published your work, it's incredibly easy to become frustrated and dis- and disillusioned and give up. But if you track your process, like how many times did I do what I said I was going to do? How many pitches have I submitted? How many blog posts have I written? How many times have I gone to the gym? How many times have I eaten a salad for lunch? If you track the process, you it's much easier to feel good about yourself. Like, oh my gosh, like I have gone to the gym for 65 days in a row. And you're proud of yourself because you you kept your promise yourself and you continue to do what you said you were gonna do. So it's it's so much more rewarding and fulfilling to track your process, to to keep the promise yourself, to keep doing what you said you were gonna do. And I mean the thing is like life is a numbers game. If you keep doing this stuff, you're eventually gonna get a result. You're eventually, you know, somebody's gonna pick up the article that you're pitching, you're eventually gonna be able to do a pull-up, you're eventually gonna lose some weight. But at a certain point, you almost even lose track of that because you're just tracking the steps that you're taking as opposed to this goal that you can't always control.
1: that this all reminds me of a couple of things. One was some of the best sort of athletic advice I got when I was much younger when I was a teenager training for track and field, which is a very which can be a very statistic obsessed um, sport. You know you're always mm-hmm. trying to get a PR. you're always trying to run a little bit faster. Uh, Mm -hmm. A a coach years ago when I was a teenager says that consistency is the key, that basically Mm -hmm. running every day, don't worry about how much faster your 1600 time is going to go down. Think Mm -hmm. about what you're going to do today. Think about you're going to train today and you're going to train tomorrow and you're going to train in the cold winter months. And Mm -hmm. the spring will take care of itself if you're consistent all winter.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
1: And I think think there's some coaches that will say – Post your PR on your wall, and that's fine. It's 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 one thing to dream yourself into a specific time on a stopwatch, but mm-hmm. that's enabled by the process. That's by waking yeah. up and doing the work. Mm-hmm. And the other example that occurred to me while you were talking is that I was recent at the recently at AWP, which is a conference uh, for writers and writing programs. Uh, about ten or twenty thousand people every year go to a conference center, literary journals, authors, things like that. I go there to represent the the program I teach in Paris every summer, the writing program. Mm-hmm. And I was hanging out with some writers, and they have started this fun contest, which is – it's sort of a rejection contest. Like the person who has sent out and received the most uh, literary rejections in the year, uh, every year at AWP, the other people buy them dinner. Mm-hmm. And so in, I love that. And, and actually, if something is accepted, I think that it gets subtracted, right? So <laughs> it, it, it encourages the kind of productive failure um, of, of, of process, really. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they have a fun little game that that rewards the person uh, who who tries the most, regardless of whether or not something was accepted. So
0: that's fantastic. I actually have um, a friend, Tiffany Hahn, who has a um, gold star chart. Or so it's empty stars. And then she buys those like, gold foil stars for herself. And her goal is to get 100 rejections. And every time she gets a rejection, she puts a gold star on her chart as a reward for because she's just she just views it as you know what, I'm just racking up the rejections, because that is the goal. And like, Oh, I got another one. Cool, I can put a sticker on my chart. Oh, they accepted it. Great. You know, I'm moving forward with this project that I want. But I think that's such a good way to reframe it.
1: Yeah, and there's different ways to do it. As you were talking, I was thinking, well, maybe you could chug a beer. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, <But, laughs> eat <Yeah. laughs> a
0: piece of string cheese.
1: <laughs> they, think of a way to re- reward that rejection because it really is, uh, and this ties into everything that we've been talking about. That that we we think about the the result, the easy, the oh, it was nothing, sort of mm-hmm. part of work, the the end mm-hmm. result, the 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 prize at the finish line, but it's easy to overlook the work and the failure and the pain and the struggle. So be it gold yeah. stars or, or shotgun beers, mm-hmm. having some sort of tangible way of celebrating that mm-hmm. process, which is often tied in with failure and rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think few successes are not tied into failure and rejection. Oh, but, yeah. Um, so that's great. So uh, any other strategies for sort of making this process tangible uh, while you're waiting for process to, to turn out or for progress oh. to pan out?
0: Oh, well, one of the things that I have found helpful is I sort of view this stuff as like I'm, I'm, strengthening, I'm strengthening my good habit muscle. And I'm like, this is a gift that I'm giving my future self. Like I don't get too hung up on like doing something perfectly because I know that if I don't do it today, I'm making it less likely that I'm going to do it tomorrow. Like every day I don't do the thing that I said I was going to do. I'm making it harder for my future self to do it. Or every time that I engage in this bad habit, like every time I sleep in my makeup, I'm making it more likely that I'm going to do the same thing again tomorrow. And so just sort of realizing that and realizing like, okay, it's not like I have to be perfect at this. It's not like I have to like put in the world's most perfect like hour and a half workout. Like I just have to go to the gym and like get on the stair climber for 20 minutes because if I don't do it today, I'm probably not going to do it tomorrow either. Or like, it's not like I need to send the world's most perfect pitch to like the New Yorker. I just have to put in like 45 minutes of working on this because if I don't do it, I'm making it harder. I'm sort of losing myself. I'm losing my place in line and I'm making it harder to do it tomorrow. So when I sort of take the pressure off myself, of being perfect and just like, you know, just do it so it's easier tomorrow. Do it so you don't forget about it or lose your place in line. That, that takes a lot of the pressure off to like be perfect about it. Just do a small version of it. Do the best you can today so that you'll keep doing it again tomorrow.
1: Yeah. That made me think of Alison Levine, a a mountaineer that I interviewed early in this podcast season. And, She led the first all-women's expedition up Everest, and they had to stop like 200 feet from the mountain. And people kept saying, "Well, why didn't you just run up to the top? You know, you were almost there." Uh, And eventually, she did come back. But I I think her point was that that's not how it works. You know, if if that is how it works, then that then everybody would do that. It's climbing mountains is about each painful step and keeping your head Mm -hmm. down, especially at that altitude. And that feels like a metaphor. That can apply to, to to what you're talking about here is that is that, of course, there's the goal uh, at, mm-hmm. at the end. But, man, unless you're focusing on one each footstep in an oxygen-deprived mm-hmm. environment, then mm-hmm. it, it may as well not happen. And, you know, they, they yeah. did go back and eventually summit Everest, but they there was no option. There was no cheating. You know, there, there was mm-hmm. no way to, yeah. s- to sprint to the top of Elf, uh, of Everest when they're 200 feet away because that's not how yeah. it works. And so that feels like a, yeah. a relevant um, – metaphor there Mm -hmm. number five is you probably can't predict what will work what will go viral what people will like what is this yeah
0: (laughs) this is the demoralizing truth of working online um is i have written things that like i publish and i was like oh just you wait this is this is my first million and then it gets four comments Um, and the two posts that I have written that have gone the most viral that I wrote myself, um, were listicles that I wrote in like 45 minutes. Um, and some of the most popular content that I've ever published, um, has been interviews with other people on topics that have nothing to do with any services I sell or any products that I sell like to this to date. I I published an interview with a woman who has herpes It's called true story. I have herpes. So the SEO on it is, is very high. It's very easy to Google. If you Googled, I have herpes, I'm sure that interview would show up on the first page. So like, it's incredibly popular. There's no way for me to monetize it. It has nothing to do with anything I sell, but there it is. So I think that especially if you're working online It can be incredibly demoralizing when you start out because you'll write something that you think is amazing that's really going to resonate with people that's going to change people's lives and then you'll hear crickets and then you might just throw something together and for whatever reason it goes viral um and so i mean i've honestly i take my own advice i just trust the process i keep showing up i keep writing stuff i keep doing my best i keep putting it out there and you know you throw enough stuff at the wall something eventually sticks but you can't take it personally, and you can't predict nearly as much as you'd think what is going to work. So you just have to keep working and doing your best, and trust that eventually it's going to work out.
1: And this feels like it's something that can apply to, you know, finance or classroom mm-hmm. teaching or, or, or architecture, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it goes back into into the process that you can't really get the the cart ahead of the horse. In a sense, you have to just try things and see what works and and what won't.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and not take it personally, because and, and the and another thing is like sometimes you will write something or teach something or create something and you're honestly ahead of the curve and nobody is like ready to hear it and then you'll re promote it two years later and all of a sudden it goes viral because now people are ready to hear it or now people there's enough like sort of zeit there's something in the zeitgeist that makes people more interested in thinking about minimalism or more interested in thinking about like a different way to manage their money when they weren't ready to talk about it two years ago
1: yeah years ago I, I did I reported I was in Rosedale Mississippi and I went to a blues bar and somebody gave me this type typewritten history of the mystical experiences of Robert Johnson at the crossroads and Ooh. To, and to that day I, I put it on my blog like in 2004 and it, it still gets tons of traffic uh, every day mm-hmm. and it was outside of my wheelhouse so what's the best way to, to sort of Manage expectations and and sort of navigate the fact that you can't predict what will work and what what won't. How, how how can we make the best sense of this reality?
0: Well, I mean, I think you can certainly make it more likely that something is going to be successful. Um, like I know what my readers like, and so I can make it more likely that I'm writing something that they are going to find helpful. I know things that pretty much never get a response. So you can make it more likely. You can look at, okay, well, what has worked in the past with investors or what has worked in the past with my students? Um, What is working with other people? You can certainly make it more likely, but I think you just need to do your best to like, if you hear yourself being like, oh yeah, this is going to be my first million. Oh yeah, this is going to be the thing that gets my book deal in the most loving way, I'm going to tell you to let that go <laughs> because it it might not happen. And if it doesn't, you're going to beat yourself up. So just do your best and, and you know, try and release expectation. Although, I mean, honestly, releasing expectation is a, is a lifetime process. You know, even people who are really good at it still struggle with it. So, you know, be gentle with yourself. It doesn't come immediately. But you can make your things more likely to succeed. But Really, just try to if you hear yourself starting to you know get a little overamped up, maybe dial it back a little bit.
1: All right, I'm going to move on to number six, and you mentioned the word list sickles in number five. I think this might be my first list sickle episode. Where, <laughs> where, where there's actually six pieces of con- of concrete advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, number six, uh, and actually, I, I've heard that that odd numbers are sometimes better for list sickles because they sort of yes, create... that
0: is true. No, that's totally true. I usually do like seven or thirteen.
1: Right. Well, you have 6 this time, so you're you're being counterintuitive. I know. <laughs> and number 6 is um don't set goals you can't control. Mhm. What does that mean?
0: Um I think a lot of us have a tendency to set goals like this year I'm going to buy a house. This year I'm going to get married. This year we're going to get pregnant. This year I'm going to, you know, get a promotion and get the corner office. And the thing is like I mean, I don't know about you, but I am not personally responsible for the housing market. And like, you know, you also can't control your partner's interest in getting married or when they're gonna propose. You can't really control your fertility. You can't really control like the stability of your industry or if your company is gonna have the budget to give promotions. But it's so common to set goals like this when like 70% of that is out of your control. Again, you can only make it more likely that that stuff is going to happen. You can, you know, really amp it up at work and like put together sort of a presentation about why you should get that promotion. Or you can, you know, have a very frank conversation with your partner about wanting to get married. Or you can, you know, meet with a specialist about fertility. But you, you can only make it more likely. You can't you can't necessarily force that stuff. So that's why I really encourage people to focus on creating daily habits that are going to get them closer to what they want rather than obsessing over a goal that honestly they don't really have that much control over because it's you can't control anything. You can only control your own actions and how you react to things.
1: Yeah, so it, it sounds like process and attitude really are, are central yeah. to all of these.
0: Yeah, that's really all you can control. All you can control is your attitude and the things that you do on a day-to-day basis. You can't control the housing market, you can't control your boss's attitude, you can't really control your company's budget, or to a certain extent, even your own health, like there's a limited amount that you can do with that stuff. So if you create daily habits or create a process that gets you close to that, that's really the best that you can do.
1: Okay, so to recap uh, this six-point sickle, One, you're probably not the exception to the rule. Two, stop pretending it's easy. That serves no one. Three, the truth about work-life balance is that you're going to find success a lot slower if you have that balance. Four, track your process, not your progress. Five, you probably can't predict what will work, what will go viral, and what people will like. And six, don't set goals you can't control. Um, Actually, you mentioned this uh, herpes person, right? That, is, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. that's a part of your True Story series?
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. I have been doing um, my True Story interview series for almost five years now, every Monday. It's amazing. It's some of the most popular content I put out. It's some of the work that I'm most proud of. It's I've interviewed tons, like the absolute gamut, like somebody who married for money, somebody who went back to college when they were 60, somebody who has herpes, somebody who... Like uh, just today I interviewed a woman who tried to um, solve her uncle's murder by herself. Um, just the, and also things like true story. I work in an urban school district, true story. I'm a long haul trucker. Um, so yeah, it's incredibly popular. It's some of the most popular content. And weirdly <laughs> um, true story. I'm a stripper true story. I have herpes and true story. I have a toxic relationship with my mom. Those three interviews which are all quite old are in their, they're always in my top 15 blog posts when I look, um, at my Google analytics.
1: Well, it's such a, it's such a elegant idea. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very simple, but, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's really appealing too. You know, I've, 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 always liked that idea and it feels like that could be your podcast, right? Is that, Oh you-
0: yeah. I've, I've actually thought about because I teach about, um, money and happiness and I've actually thought about creating a podcast that was a combination of the true stories and money and doing like true story money interviews like true story I have a I have a um trust fund true story I went bankrupt true story I'm a self-made millionaire because you know everybody needs money and nobody talks about it
1: yeah and it's almost like those are case studies that you can sort of Mm -hmm. get into the concrete details of somebody else's experience and then and just sort of consider yourself uh and your own life in the context of what has happened to other people. Did you recently go on a road trip to sort of like overlooked medium-sized yes. cities?
0: Yes, yes, I actually um, so I am from um, a town of 2,000 people. I'm from this tiny resort town and so in Minnesota. yes, in Minnesota. And so like small towns, are, and like, sort of like the, like the health of small towns is always something that's been really important to me and really interesting to me. Um, so I actually partnered with a company called livability and their goal is to get pe- more people to move to and travel to small to mid-sized cities, um, for a variety of reasons, but a lot because of cost of living, because, uh, I mean, like you live in Kansas and obviously it's, it's much easier to have a nice life when you live someplace that's not ab- abysmally expensive. Um, And so Livability came out with their top 100 small to mid-sized cities and I picked 10 of those cities and then they sponsored me to go to them and then, you know, sort of like explore them and see what they were about. And it was fantastic because of these 10 cities, I'd only been to one before. Several of these cities I'd never even heard of. Um, And it was nice because they were all sort of like vetted. So these were like, you know, they, they had like beautiful town squares and you know, like great restaurants, and they were, you know, in the rolling hills of Indiana next to a river, and it was just, it was wonderful, and I was, what was amazing is I would post photos of the places that I would go, and sometimes I would look up what the median house price was in these cities, and then I would post on Instagram, like, oh, guys, did you know that this town that I've just been showing you, did you know that the median house price is $170,000, and my DMs, my Instagram DMs were just filled with people saying things like, oh my gosh, you know, we've been wanting to leave Denver because it's too expensive. And like, I'm going to, I'm sending this information to my, to my husband or like, it's just, I think when you live someplace expensive or in a big city, it's so easy to sort of think like, oh, this is just the way it is and forget that there are other options. But there are so many lovely places where life is more affordable. There are plenty of jobs and you can have a great life and a great job and sort of like a nice work-life balance to go back to that at a much lower cost. You can take a job that you really like without having to worry about, you know, your like $10,000 mortgage.
1: I, I so love, it, was,
0: it was really fun.
1: Well, I love the concept. And of course, I've I've subscribed to it because I live in, in rural Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's almost like we were talking before about these prescribed lifestyles that are supposed to be equated with happiness or success, you, you know, your wardrobe or your sports car. I think that, that there's also prescribed places, and it's almost oh, yeah. a subtler thing because, of course, I was just in New York recently, and, and I love New York, and my friends mm-hmm. who are there love it, but they're they're stressed out money-wise, that they really oh have gosh, to hustle yes. to be there. But I've also met people who, like, their geography is... There's sort of a sports car slash wardrobe to where they think they should live. Should it be Austin? Should it be Portland? Um, Should Mm -hmm. it be even Minneapolis? I mean, I think that there Mm -hmm. are certainly certain fashionable places for upwardly mobile Americans um, Mm -hmm. when, in fact, uh, there's some counterintuitive places. Again, I know several of them in, in, in Kansas alone. this feels like it could be an entire episode i love the idea of the the livability of medium-sized cities but before this turns into a separate episode did you have a favorite place of the 10 (laughs) oh my gosh yes
0: yes yes um bloomington indiana is spectacular like my um my husband is a is a climatologist he works um he does a lot of work in academia And I told I was like, you know, if you want to do an academic exchange, (laughs) if you want to find some sort of situation where we move to Bloomington for like two to four years. And he was like, yeah, it's it is just beautiful. It's in these it's in the rolling hills of Indiana. Um, There is a university there. I think it's the University of Indiana. Um, It's a state. And it's. Oh my gosh, that school looks like Hogwarts. It's ludicrously beautiful. It's a a great school. The city has an actual town square, which I didn't even like know was still a thing where they have like the beautiful old courthouse and it's ringed by thriving independent businesses. Like I I literally didn't know that that existed in America anymore. It's incredibly liberal. Like I ate at a fantastic vegetarian restaurant. I had to wait in line for like 30 minutes to get a seat at this fantastic vegetarian restaurant. Like it's just great. And it's 30 minutes from I think Columbus, Indiana, which is also really lovely.
1: That's great. You know, I, th- I think there's an extent to which some American college towns are sort of embassies for each other, and there's yes. yeah. the Eugenes and and the the Lawrence's and the and mm-hmm. the Burlingtons around America. I had not heard about Bloomington. I'm not surprised, but you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Bloomington, Indiana, the the cool new place to live. And again, I I really do. I, I want to find a way to have an, my own episode about awesome medium sized places to live in America. But for now, uh, what can you leave us with? Uh, we.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I would say um, the thing that I would encourage everybody to do is um, to take pressure off yourself to make your life look a certain way, um, to know that you can find happiness um, outside of, you know, six figures um, and also to put some time into thinking really honestly and clearly about what makes you happy and what you want and what are like small Daily repeatable things that you can do to get closer to what you want
1: This has been deviate with Rolf Potts more about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Sarah von Bargen's advice, interviews, and other writing, can be found in the show notes at rollfpots.com deviate and as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviaterolfpots.com. At This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.